Hi, Shivani. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great, Ange. It's great to be here again. I am looking forward to Christmas. We've got some optimism in our, um, in our spirits, I think, with two months left to go. Even though we've got nowhere to holiday to, it's still something to look forward to. Yes, exactly. Optimism also. We are recording this a few days before the US election. So I don't think you can really take much from the polls. I think that would be pretty stupid regarding given what happened uh, in 2016. And but also the Australian election as well. Australian election as well. And also it's so strange. Yeah, and it's such a strange time in the sense that the the early voting, how many people turn up, a pandemic, we, we don't know. But still, I'm, I've, I've, I've got some optimism regarding uh, the next few days and, and what might happen and what change might be happening and what kind of things might be afoot for the last couple of months of the year. I also noted earlier this week that in Chile there was... Um, they, the people took to the streets about a year ago and they've actually uh, gone ahead and... Um, been able to put up a referendum to change their constitution, their constitution that was originally written under a military dictatorship. And the constitution, I think this is the first time in history that any constitution in the world has ever been written 50% by men, 50% by women. So that is part of the deal that they will vote for citizens to vote for this, to come up with this constitution. And uh, 50% of those people elected to do that, and they won't be, you know, the, the, the sitting political um, elect, go, governing members, but they will elect those people and they'll write up a constitution and then vote for it. So that was a little bit of like positivity that I saw come out of this week and I wanted to share that bit of optimism. So I, I think little... that's just incredible, a constitution how it should be, right, <laughs> representing its people and its people, of course, are made up of men and women and people who identify as anything in between. So um, I... I think that's just fabulous. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so so optimism going into the final couple of months of 2020. So there's been a lot of news about women in leadership over the past week or two, both in Australia and internationally. So we're going to go through some of those, a few developments that have been happening there. Um, but I wanted to start with a few, um, on, on the optimistic side, I want to start with a few positives, and that is... The news over the last couple of weeks that Kate Morris from Adore Beauty, now Kate co-founded Adore Beauty from a garage 20 years ago when she was 21 years old. Um, So this month, that online beauty business has listed on the ASX and it's become the most valuable float of 2020 so far and the largest listing by a female co-founder ever. And I just think... That is some news to take, especially today. If you flick through the um, Australian Financial Review today and you saw the rich list, you'd say that, yep, Gina Reinhart has the first spot, but then it's pretty hard to find any other women among those 200. In fact, I think you have to get to 25, number 25 or something to find a, a woman there. So, so when it comes to this high end of wealth, there's not many uh, women included at that point, and we see that in those rich lists. But something like this with this ASX listing, I just took so much from that especially um having interviewed Kate Morris over the years and her she's such an advocate for women and such a supporter of uh, women entrepreneurs she pushes for childcare. she pushes back against sexism she was out years ago saying that you know out there taking a stand against all male panels and various other things so I I just saw that as a, a really a really positive story and good development this week I think it's incredible and hats off to Kate Morris because she has really shown 
the nation and the world how it's done. And through her, we've got some incredible leadership and representation that women-led businesses need to be taken seriously. And the women consumerism market needs to be taken seriously and done so by our people who understand it, aka female analysts. Because what's really interesting about um, the Adore Float story, of course, you know, you've already covered off so well how successful it was. And that just fills me up with pride for, you know, a fellow woman in business and she's just doing so well. Um, but what was really interesting was when she was going through her fundraising journey, so many of the VC community, so many of the analysts just couldn't understand where the money was within this. And she had to actually explain how female, how the female consumerism market, how the female makeup market and demand for that actually worked and why it would still stay in, in times like what we have right now, the, the new COVID normal. Um, so it really goes to show that there's a massive gap there when it comes to, you know, um, you know, female representation in the ASX, um, in, uh, in the IPO land, uh, which of mm -hmm. course stands for initial public offering, which is the first time you, you know, you float your share in the market. Um, so I, I think it, it raises some really important issues. Uh, but also what's really exciting, um, Ange, now that you mention it, is that a door coming into the market has actually gotten women really excited about shares as well. Mm. Um, and there's been an upswing as well in, in women um, opening up their first share trading accounts because it's a company that they know and love. It's a company that they would use. So it's, it's certainly a great success story. Yeah, yeah, that's what um, was really great to hear. So Kate um, um, mentioned, she, she's tweeted about that and spoken about that, about how yeah women are uh, investing for the first time because they're seeing a company that they want to be a part of and they want to own a part of and they're seeing an opportunity there. So I think that's really interesting to see. And then the other side of this story this week is that Kate Morris, as well as I mean, another um, prominent female entrepreneur, um, George McEnroe, who's the, um, co the founder of Sheba, um, which is a, a driving service that is all that only has female drivers within it. Uh, I probably haven't pitched that very well, but um, it, it's Shiva. No, so makes perfect sense. I didn't want to say the it, it's it's kind of like an Uber, I guess you might call it, but um, I definitely haven't pitched that very well. But yeah, they do have all female drivers, and she went to do an a crowdfunding equity raise. I think it was early last year, and part of her reasoning behind that was because the male VCs just weren't, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't get, you know, why do, why do you want to call up a car that you know that you're going to have a female driver? You can see that they just couldn't necessarily get across that. So she went and did this crowdfunding. She raised millions of dollars in that and she's doing really well. And again, a huge supporter of, of other women and other female entrepreneurs as well. And so this week, both Kate and George announced that they are investors in Monica Meldrum's business and Monica Meldrum has also done a, a crowdfunding equity raise um, and for her whole kids business which is they, they sell kids snack foods in supermarkets and she's raised more than a million dollars I think over the past week or so she's had hundreds of people invest in that um, including so Kate who's thrown her support behind it and like I said um, George as well and that's what happens here is that when women do become successful, you do see how they go and give back. It's one thing to say, oh, it's great because you see the success story there and it's inspiring and you can see what you can achieve. But the, the issue, the thing is that they do also go back and invest in female-led business, especially if they can get to the point of creating some really significant wealth along the way. Absolutely. And, and you know what? Again, this is just such a beacon on, um, on highlighting the big gaps that are there. Um, that, um, that men just don't experience when it comes to, you know, a, a woman's entrepreneurial journey, but also um, 
a, a woman's journey through through life, right? I mean, talking about Sheba and um, and the service that they offer every time, and and I can probably count on one hand how many times I've had a female driver, mm. um, whether it be a taxi or, or an Uber. But every time I have, I've sat in the car and gone, "Oh my god." hello and and just you know and rejoice the fact that there's a fellow woman sitting sitting in the car with me and immediately and i don't even realize how much even if it's just one percent tension in my body that is aware somewhere within my ecosystem personally about my personal safety that one percent that i'm not even aware of because i'm carrying it around with me every single day and it's part of my life just relaxes and when it relaxes I feel that sense of relaxation and I feel so much safer. And so it's no wonder that the male VC community just didn't get why there would be a need for female, you know, Uber drivers to use that example of Sheba because they've never felt that, that need to feel safe. I mean, we did a, we did a poll in, um, for the remarkable woman around all the things that women have to do to feel safe. And we, we talked about, you know, having to hold the, the car keys in your hands um, we talked about, um, you know, never parking next to a big van and so forth. And we were inundated with so many different comments of women talking about how they feel, um, the, the measures rather that they have to take in order to ensure their personal safety. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's just shocking. But on that other note as well around, you know, women supporting women in business, um, I think it's phenomenal. And I think that um, it'll start to create a wave of obviously more women coming into business. There are only, um, you know, around one third female business owners um, in Australia. We need mm -hmm. to tilt that as hard as we possibly can. But we also need to make the fundraising environment, as you said, um, in the VC environment, so much more female friendly because the notion of female leadership isn't really understood. The notion of leadership is understood and it's, it's encapsulated in the realms of what is male-led leadership. And so naturally, when a woman doesn't look or sound or act like that or respond in that way, then she is dismissed, whether consciously or unconsciously, by key decision makers, whether it be partners, stakeholders, investors, the VC community or anyone and everyone else. Um, and mm -hmm. so the more female leaders we have, the more we normalise that style of representation and the more that that kind of leadership becomes the norm. Um, mm -hmm. And that's so important because, as you were saying, you know, um, businesses like Sheba had to, had to crowd raise um, in order to get funding because they just weren't taken seriously. And, and we know this, right? There's the, the percentages of, of money that go to female founders from the VC community are absolutely minute. Mm. Uh, mm. So well, it's um, good to see some progress like here. a third of business owners are female, but that's the business owners. I think like the, it's, it's just like more business owners, single yeah. percentage range, the amount of money that goes to women-led businesses. It is so shockingly tiny is it's just unbelievable and then you think i mean the piece i wrote today that talks about kate morris and just talks about women supporting women and especially these really you know uber successful um business women supporting other women you just i just also mentioned there was another one there of um it's called pronto and um i think i'm due to speak to the founder hopefully in the next few hours or so but you know she has created something so amazing and where it's that they're, they're and they're doing it in equity. They're doing a crowdfunding fund, um, raise as well. And she's created these like these self-cleaning baby bottles. Basically, you know, any new parent, you know how much time and effort you put into cleaning baby bottles. And I dare say that often it is a new mother who's doing that on top of everything else. And so it's kind of I hate to use this word, but it's like they've gone out and said we're going to disrupt the baby bottle. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's just and what a cool idea. And 
created some really great marketing assets and they've done and worked through with the med tech community and various other parts of um, the startup community as well to develop this. And, and that's what you see is that you just see really innovative products that we just have long needed but have been, those needs have been complete, often overlooked because, I mean, often it's men who are getting these opportunities to do so. But on that note, Shivani, I want to move to another, uh, a different story, female leadership again. Um, I want to go to Christine Holgate, the CEO of Australia Post, who has been a lot in the media this week. And now you've, you've wrote a piece about um, what's been happening with Christine Holgate uh, for the Sydney Morning Herald, and I think we're due to publish a bit of a longer version of that piece as well on women's agenda. Talk me through, tell us what happened, first of all, for those who don't know, but also where are you, what, what, are, you, what are your feelings on, on what has occurred regarding these $20,000 watches? Yeah, so so those of, uh, those of our listeners who don't know what happened with Christine Holgate, so CEO of Australia Post, I hope she remains the CEO of Australia Post, but given the way that she's been singled out by um, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, she may not be for, for much longer. Uh, but what she did was she bought four Cartier watches, totaling just shy of $20,000, um, and gave them to four executives. So 20000 was the total spend. Um, gave them to four executives for the role that they played in securing a bank at Post deal. Now, here's why this is important. As we know, Australia Post, it's a... Uh, it's, it's a legacy business, right? Um, it's, it's a business that started with our snail mail. And of course, we know that in the digital era that we live in right now, snail mail is no longer a thing. Um, so how is a business like Australia Post, which is still a national necessity, mind you, supposed to stay afloat? Yes, it's 100% owned by, by the taxpayer, but they need to have commercial um, operations in order to stay afloat. And what Christine Holgate did, and this was absolutely um, you know, a landmark deal for, for her under her tenor, uh, but also the executives that supported her, was she negotiated this bank at post deal and she managed to get CBA to sign a deal where they would pay $22 million in order for their customers to be able to bank at post offices, hence why it was called bank at post. Um, and that was then followed through by Westpac and NAB. So all in all, she's brought in $66 million of revenue, her and these key executives. And according to her, these key executives put in an inordinate amount of work um, in order to get this deal through. And coming from corporate world, I, I can only imagine. And, and I know how hard these deals are to, uh, to secure. So she secures this. And as a result, she cements the ability for Australia Post to continue on and provide, you know, um, really important services that, mind you, have supported um, Australia through COVID-19, through the bushfires, through it all. But she also supported small business owners by securing this deal, right? Um, she she was able to, as a result of it, increase um, the, the transaction amounts that these licensees were earning by up to 50%. This is significant. And this is why some of these post offices were going to have a strike day to protest the treatment of Christine Holgate. Um mm. And when I say treatment, the treatment that I'm talking about is the fact that in question time, when ScoMo, uh, ScoMo actually brought this up and said how disgusted and appalled he was by this purchase. Mm. And this is what really shocks me. Why exactly are you disgusted and appalled by this? Can we get some context? Because did you want to finish the fact that it was 20 grand for $66 million worth of a deal, which worked out to be 0.03%? Um, I fall over those figures because it's just so darn tiny. 
Um, you know, and, um, and, and he said that there will be an immediate investigation for which Christine Holgate needs to stand aside. And if she doesn't like that, she can go. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like bullying to me. I mean, when, when you, in question time, through the privilege of hours in Parliament, say to someone, you step aside or if you don't like it, you go, um, you're using your power and your privilege um, to, to effectively oppress someone. And, and Christine Holgate, rightfully so, got her lawyers involved and said, well, you had no right to tell me to step aside over that. Um, there, was no, there was no genuine cause. And, and she's very right in doing so. So, Angela, my opinion is um, we are outraged for the wrong reasons. This is grandstanding. This is a smoke and mirrors approach. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I have given so many kudos to um, Scott Morrison for the way in which he's handled the COVID-19 crisis, in particular, his handling of it economically um, and his support to Australians. I mean, there were some things that were missed here and there, um, you know, ch childcare, for example, and the budget and so forth. But all in all, he's done a magnificent job. However, when it comes to this, it is very clear to me that he is grandstanding and creating a smoke and mirrors approach to say, look how hard I am on things that um, could be perceived to be an abuse of taxpayer money. And the reason that he's doing that is because he didn't have a very hard-lined approach. In fact, his quote-unquote response was not happy when he was asked about why land that was worth $3 million um, for the airport purchase was actually, uh, was actually bought for $33 million of, of course, taxpayer money. So where's the outrage in that? So there seems to be a very clear misdirect, uh, redirect here, and there seems to be a very clear optics of politics going on here all at the expense of Christine Holgate and those executives. Yeah, totally. So you're probably a little bit more generous than me with Scott Morrison. <laughs> That's okay. I, um, I did say bits and pieces. I did say economically. I'm not saying anyway. it glowingly overall. I'm just I'm giving <laughs> you some that into a side. But, um, and also, I mean, one thing I will say, I guess right now, obviously the optics, it makes for such an easy headline on a paper to see that, you know, $20,000 on watches and you, and she did happen to wear a very expensive watch to Senate estimates, which made for an easy photo and an easy visual and an easy topic of conversation over the weekend of family members to talk about, oh, isn't this outrageous that this happens? But, you know, it is, and it is that thing, it is a total distraction from the other things that happen. Like you mentioned, you just mentioned the airport sale there and that's the thing. It's that, you know, right now that, this idea that, that Scott Morrison is willing and his government is willing to move so fast on an integrity issue like this, but when they're talking about other integrity issues from within the government, within the parliament, that, that they're not they're actually pushing aside and saying, well, we can't deal with this because of COVID. And so I think there is definitely a, a scapegoating element here. And like you say, there, there is a lot of bullying there. So we'll see what happens next because there are developments occurring um, in that there are lawyers involved. Uh, Christine Holgate, through her lawyers, has come out and said that she's been humiliated by Scott Morrison. So we're seeing a lot around that. So hands down, she has been. Mm. And you know what, Angela, how does her career survive this, right? She has been tainted by the watch scandal. And you're so right around the headlines. I remember that some of the headlines last week, not on my watch, ScoMo says. <laughs> you know? mm. um, so many of these things. And, and can I just make a point? Why shouldn't Christine Holgate wear the watch of her choice to a Senate hearing? Um, I, I, you, know what this, you, you know what's happening here? We are bias bashing Christine Holgate. Um, we are bashing. And it, this goes to my other point. And when I say we, I mean society at large, everyone who's, who's jumped on this bandwagon of the blame game, right? Um, we don't have 
a clear enough and a diverse enough and a repetitive enough picture of what female leadership looks like. Mm. And what we have instead is what male leadership looks like. Um, and if, and what we are doing by way of bias is we're saying, well, hang on a second. You're not our, um, our um, image of what, you know, um, an an older female leader needs to look like. You know, you stay in fancy hotels, you wear fancy clothes and you reward people with fancy watches. That doesn't look, smell, feel right to me. And so therefore I am against you. Um, We are are pushing against the unknown, whereas in fact, this should be the known. This should, I'm not saying that rewarding people with watches should be the norm. I'm just saying that different variations of leadership should be known and accepted. Mm, yeah 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 I agree I agree because there's been there's been plenty of examples of male leadership and it just so happens to be that the um when things like this happen with female leadership that it does it does stand out and seems to make for like I say an easier headline and an easier point of conversation for people to pull up and be outraged by without necessarily looking at all the details behind it okay so moving on to the final thing that I think we'll discuss uh today um this week of being okay so appointments in obviously u.s supreme court um with amy coney barrett being confirmed uh fast-tracked confirmed uh very conveniently ahead of the election next week and ahead of any uh whatever disputes it may occur regarding that election result which would ultimately end up in that court um and also we've had uh appointments on the high court in australia as well so we've had so in, um, obviously it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who was replaced on the Supreme Court in the US and in Australia where it is, um, I've heard it described uh, in a piece today as a more subtle kind of political process that occurs with high court appointments. Um, we've, had, um, we've had replacements here in the lead up to um, Justice Virginia Bell who is retiring next year. In Australia, interestingly, there is a forced retirement age of 70 so you, you kind of think about you know, what, what difference that might make in the US, but there is that forced retirement age here. Um, and so both these appointments, um, so Jacqueline, Justice Jacqueline Gleeson has been appointed to the High Court study in March 2021. And so she replaces a woman and obviously Amy Coney Barrett replaces a woman as well. So there is no gender change on either of those courts. It stays the same. It is... Um, there, there are obviously changes in uh, where, where, where they, they, they might stand politically, but not so much in terms of gender. Um, there isn't really much shift in terms of uh, diversity more generally on either of those courts either. So that's happening. So, Shivani, what do you make of these appointments? I mean, we had a little chat earlier and I think there is that sense that you know, obviously Amy Coney Barrett is one, one thing because she has particularly conservative views and Unfortunately, during Congress, as, as she was answering questions, I don't believe we really got to hear her full take on what those views would mean. She said things like that, you know, on, on say, climate change. She actually said, I do not have firm views on climate change. Um, mm. I don't get an answer there. She didn't fully kind of express uh, her, her feelings on um, certain things that we can assume that she would be quite conservative on. So it's hard to know. You know right? I think we can, we can make assumptions and guesses, but... Um, obviously then quite different to what's occurring on the high court in Australia. But I guess the point there is, I guess, that like, like, like you said, that there's no change in the gender diversity. It's still exactly. majority male. Like, I mean, I guess we should be thankful that it didn't go any more majority male, but it is still um, swinging in favour of men there. And there isn't really much change in terms of the diversity uh, generally. And there was, you know, great 
piece today from Kim Rubenstein, who, and she notes that, you know, of like the two new justices in Australia and, and um, Amy Coney Barrett in the US, you know, they all went to private schools. They all came from families where the parents were lawyers. Um, Jacqueline Gleeson is the daughter of um, Justice Murray Gleeson, who was on the high court as well. So, you know, that there is that... <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. But, Look, know, I, I think there's a lot in, in the family here. There, there is a lot of privilege going so on. And, mm. That's what it is. There's a lot of embedded privilege. Mm. And with that, there lacks a sense of diversity of lifestyle and diversity of understanding of the hardship that other people may experience. And, you know, we talk about this often in a corporate sense, right? Why your board needs to be diversified, why your senior leadership team needs to be diversified. And the reason why we say that at the, at the, core, at the core of it is so that you can do away with what we call groupthink, right? Where you all think the same thing. And, um, and so therefore, you know, you end up being blindsided with something um, or you end up making poor decisions that aren't representative of everyone. And when you have this at a level where, you know, in the US, the Supreme Court or, in, or here in Oz, um, in the High Court, it becomes incredibly dangerous because your decisions are setting precedents. Um, you are responsible for interpreting legislation. You are responsible for, for case law. And, um, and as a result of that, it can be really dangerous because you're, you're affecting people's lives and, and you're creating a, a standing ripple effect going forward. Um, and that's what concerns me. I mean, in, in some ways, yes, I'm, I'm very pleased that we have an appointment of another, um, another female justice um, at the High Court. But as, we, as you and I were talking about earlier, it's status quo. Right. And this is why women like you and I and many incredible, you know, female um, empowerment and, and leadership style organizations like ours. Um, of course, we do it in different ways, but, but like ours in terms of spirit um, need to keep pushing the status quo. Otherwise, the status quo remains. And this is a great example of that. There are seven judges in the Australian High Court. Um, they've maintained gender balance by, uh, by replacing, there was, there was two outgoing, so they replaced both of them with one woman and one male. Therefore, there are three women and four men. Now, why couldn't gender balance look like four women and three men? Why couldn't it be the other way around? Why does gender balance have to be three and four the other way around? And therefore, it is, um, you know, it, it is at a loss of women. So there's that component there that we, we need to continually challenge the status quo to show what real equality looks like. Or perhaps let's invoke the great late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was once asked, what would equality look like in the Supreme Court? And she said, well, it would be, it would be nine Supreme Court judges because in the US it's, um, it's nine, right? And, and over here it's, it's seven. And um, because, you know, way back when no one blinked an eyelid, <laughs> did they? Yeah, yeah. Um, when it was nine men, um, that was just normal. So why can't all women be normal? Mm. And to your point, Angela, when you were talking about privilege, right? Um, I, I think it goes to that concept of, you know, cultural capital, social capital, all of that, that feeds to your privilege and it gives you, it serves you up the platform where mm. you are elevated to positions like this. Of course, um, you know, um, Jacqueline Gleeson is, is um, um, you know, is the, um, as you were saying, the, uh, the, the eldest daughter of, um, you know, Justice Murray Gleeson. Um, and, so, and, so, and so there's that there. So, you know, where is that diversity of, of lifestyle and thinking? And so therefore perhaps some level of empathy and compassion for people who come from completely different, you know, paths of lives and, um, and you know, understanding what goes into that. I, I, I think, I, I think that that creates a sense of lacking. You also yeah. talked about um, an, an imbalance as well. 
Um, and, and that's really interesting too, because it seems our High Court has an imbalance in terms of specialisation of criminal law. Um, of course, you know, Jacqueline Gleeson comes from a, um, a, a specialisation in, in tax law, and, and that's great. Um, but, but, you know, there, there should be some level of uh, expertise when it comes to criminal law as well. So that's just a, another point that I think we need to be wary of. All right. Well, I think we should end it. That, that was quite a lot to go through. So <laughs> thank you so much, Vani. As always, insightful. Uh, we'll publish your piece so it's there and we might have a look at some of the updates that come out on Christine Holgate over the week and I think there'll be more to, to hear about there. So thank you, Angela. But before we go, I think we need to serve up some of our, our listeners some, some juicy gossip because before we got on, you were telling me about the oldest piece of clothing in your wardrobe. Do share. We want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible. It is terrible. I, the oldest piece of clothing, I think, I think it is actually a sports bra. And yeah, bras are notorious for, for lasting a long time. And I just think the the cost per wear, like I've really I've really exceeded that. I've gotten my, you know, return on investment and I look at this thing and I think there are some, you know, you've got items that you only wear every now and again. And then to think, why is it that maybe it's just me that like gym clothes that you just get so comfortable in them, they become a second skin that you don't think so much about going and replacing them. But um, what is your oldest? I, I love that. I, um, I high five myself for being economical, for basically never throwing clothes out either. Um, I probably have underwear that is a good 15 years old. You'd probably take a, a shirt or, or something else and you'd think, oh, you know, I, that we're, we're, we're sort of done with that. I'll find a new new life for that somewhere else. But not the not the everyday essentials. Not You wait till you get a lot of holes in those. And then... Yeah, you wait till it turns to dust. And even then, it's pretty comfy, so you'll probably keep it going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. We will be back next time to share more of some of the key stories that we're following on Women's Agenda. Thank you, Shivani. Thanks, Ange.